Good morning, Strong Tower. It's good to see everyone this morning. If it's your first time with us again, uh, we want to welcome you. We're glad you can be with us today. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we're especially glad you could be here today because it is our Connect Group Expo Day. Amen. Amen. And so you came on a good Sunday if it's your first time or if it's, you know, you've been a couple times now and haven't found a way to get to know some folks. Uh, But it's a great day to find out what groups we have at our church and kind of meet some of the leaders and some of the folks that are in the groups. Uh, And also, as you're turning to the passage, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 today. Uh, I want to just encourage you, we have a church plant happening. I don't know if you all knew that or remember that from the beginning of the year, but we announced that we are planting a church in Bartow called Oak City Church, and they started last Sunday having evening services down in Bartow at First Baptist Church in Bartow. They've they've been gracious to let them uh, have their meetings there, and so we want to encourage you guys to go visit them on a Sunday night. They're at five o'clock. We would love to have people from Strong Tower just to go support them, encourage them what's going on. You could even take your connect group. We actually had a connect group go last week and very encouraged to hear that, that the whole group showed up and supported the church plant. And so think of it like you're going to visit your kids. Our church is having a kid. It's real exciting. Uh, So we want between now and January to get as many folks over there to just see what's going on and support the work. Uh, So take advantage of that if you have the opportunity. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, going through verse 12. Hear the reading of God's word. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the way of healing, the way of healing. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. You've spoken to us. May we be a people who listen. May we be a people who have attentive ears, ears to hear what you are saying to your church. God, whether we find ourselves this morning in a place where we are struggling or rejoicing, whether we are believing or unbelieving, we pray your spirit would work on our hearts to know you more. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
Who is this? That was the name of the question on the, on the board, or that was the name of the game on the board at the uh, elementary school this Tuesday night that our kids go to. It was parent night, or they call it open house, I think. And they had the, the school opened up for all the parents to come to see what their kids were doing at school. You know, it's been about a month or so since school has started, and now the kids are getting into their schoolwork, and, and our kids, at least, were very excited to show us all that was happening at their school. I mean, they've been telling us, but now they want to show us. This is where I sit, and this is where I do my work, and this is our little reading corner, and they wanted us to see where they are during the day and all that was going on. And so we show up to the open house, and in the hallway of the second grade wing is this big display. And on the display, you have all these pictures, and the second graders had all drawn self-portraits, right? And they put these self-portraits up on the, the display in the hallway, and on the top it said, who is this? And on the bottom, it had sticky notes with every student's name. And the parent was supposed to go find the sticky note with their kid's name and try to match it to the picture. Now, you would think this is easier because, you know, you know your kid, but it's second grade art, which is more like abstract art. So some of the kids, you know, they, you could tell that, that it was a person. Some of the kids, it was a lot of colors and, you know, some shapes and different things going on. Some of them looked like they were professional artists in the making. They were, they were incredible second grade artists. And so here we are holding our daughter's sticky note trying to find out which one is her. And as we analyze all the details and you try to get into your kid's mind, what, what are they thinking as they're drawing this? We took a guess and it was thankfully correct. We, we can identify our own kid. But as I was going through that process, I was thinking how much it makes you focus in on what makes them them. Like, who is this? Who is my kid? What, what does she look like? What, what does she think of herself? What, you know, you start asking these questions, you start paying closer attention to who this person really is. And that's the question that's driving our text. As, as we're thinking about this text, we're, we're continuing in this series in the Gospel of Mark. And if you're new to the Bible, the Gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus's life. And it's one of four stories. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Mark's gospel, the whole first half is trying to answer this question, who is this? Everyone who's around Jesus, everyone who's coming into contact with Jesus is trying to answer, who is this man who's doing these things and saying these things? Who is he? And so as we go through the story, you start to see in just the very first few chapters that Jesus starts doing these healings. And these healings are, are popping up here and there and here and there. And all over the first couple chapters, Jesus is healing. And sometimes when you think of healing in the Bible, if you've read the Bible, you might think that, oh, that's just interesting. Or, or they're trying to keep you engaged. And wow, isn't that amazing how they healed somebody? And, and you don't realize that the healings in the Bible are never random. The healings in the Bible are always revealing something about God. And so when he is healing, Jesus is revealing who he is. That's the question. Who is this guy? And you guys are probably all 
wrestling with that question just like I am and everyone does because that's the question of our whole life. Who is Jesus? I mean, in some sense, you're, you're wrestling with it. Maybe you're new to faith and, and you're here trying to figure out what you believe or, or you used to go to church a long time ago and now you've got a whole different view of the Bible and of Jesus and, and you're trying to figure it out. And we're glad you're here. We're, we're here to try to help you walk through that journey and that process. But even if you've been walking with Jesus a long time, you're still going to be asking that question, who is Jesus? Because at one point in your life, you thought you knew who he was. And then that sin wrecked your life. Or you thought you knew who he was, and, and then you walked through that storm of suffering, and now you're asking again, who, who is Jesus? Like, who, who is he really? I thought I knew him in this way, and I thought I knew him in that way, but as the years go by and the decades go by, you start to have a little different answer to that question. You start to get a clearer picture as you identify who Jesus is. And what's amazing about the Gospel of Mark is he reveals this throughout the story, and one of the primary ways he does it is through his healings. And so I want to look at that this morning, his way of healing, showing how, 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 who Jesus is. So let's first look at the hurting. If you're taking notes this morning, that's what I want to look at first, the hurting. Look at verse 3 as we jump into this story. It says this, And they came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, like I said, this, this is a series of healings. In fact, this is the fifth healing scene in a row. So Mark is trying to give us kind of this over and over. He's saying the same thing, trying to help us see a little bit of something. But as these healings are building on each other, the crowd is also building. So every time Jesus heals somebody and teaches and, and engages with folks, the crowd gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And now it's getting so big, it says that there's, there's people spilling out of the house. What's fascinating before we move on is the word that Mark uses here for crowd is not the normal word for crowd in the original language. It's not just a word that means lots of people in one place. The word is aklos. Can you say aklos? You're going to learn some Greek this morning. Aklos. And, and the word aklos has a very specific usage in Greek history. It's actually a word that means a, a politically and culturally insignificant mass of people. It was a word that, that was used originally of the people who were on the front lines of a military attack, the, all the people who would die first, those were the aklas. It was masses and masses of people who would die, and they didn't care if they died. In other words, it was, it was the masses of people who are dispensable. They, they didn't care about them at all. It was the masses of people who were marginalized and forgotten and poor and uneducated. The masses of people were called the aklas. And actually, the Oculus plays a significant role in Mark's gospel. In the first 10 chapters, it appears 38 times. 38 times. Here's what Mark is trying to communicate. The Oculus is always with Jesus. They're, they're always around Jesus. And so then Mark now gives this paralytic as an example 
He's, he's giving this scene where Jesus is at a home. We're not really sure which home he's at, but he's at a home and he's teaching. And, and there's so many people that's spilling out of the house. And, and now they're, they're trying to figure out what, what are we supposed to do? I mean, people are hot. It's loud. They're probably smelly because there's all these people sweating in the middle of the day. And, and it's just grouchy and grumpy. And people are trying to get in and push their way through. And yet they're there because they want to hear Jesus. They want to see Jesus. And in the middle of that scene, there, there's this group of men. It says there's four men or four friends who are carrying their friend on a wooden bench. That, that's what it means by bed. The, the, the type of bed that the poor would have in that community was literally just a piece of wood that you would sleep on. And they're carrying him on the bench that he sleeps on to Jesus. And when they show up to the house, they, they got to church a little bit late. So there's no parking places. There's no seats. Like there's, there's no way they can get in the house. And they try to press through, but it's not working. So what do they do? They make their own door. They decide they're going to go up on the roof of this house. Now, when you picture this house, don't think of like a mansion. This is in the countryside where all the poor folks live. This was a one-room dwelling that it got so tight in that house that they had to go hang out on the roof just to get away from people. You know how that is? I mean, you've been in close quarters and you're, you're tired of being around people. Everybody's grouchy and hot and you go hang out somewhere else because you need just a little bit of space. That, that's what the roof was. It was kind of like a patio for them. And so they had this staircase or sometimes a ladder on the back end of the house that would get you on the roof. So these guys go around to the back of the house. They carry their friend up on the top and they start to dig. Yes, digging through the house. I mean, they start to pull back the tiles that would have been on there, the, the grass and the, the hardened mud, whatever they use to make for their, their roof. They, they start to pull it back and dig through the house. And you could just imagine Jesus is in the middle of his teaching and he looks up and there's something falling from the ceiling. They hear people up on the roof. It's, it's getting loud. And next thing you know, the things that are falling, now there's light coming through the top. Somebody is coming in through the roof. I mean, could you imagine the scene? What makes these people vandalize the house to get to Jesus? All we know is because they knew that the only place they could go with their pain was to Jesus. It was to Jesus. See, the, the, uh, the hurting are at home with Jesus. Where, where do you take your hurts? Where, where do you take your hurts? I mean, where, where do we turn when, when our teenagers are acting a fool? Where do we turn when the finances just aren't adding up and I don't know where my next meal is going to come from? I don't know what's going to happen next. Where, where do we turn? Where do we turn when the diagnosis is certain death? Where do we turn when there's a society that's built a system that is against us? Where do you turn? In our world today, it's, it's strange that uh, sometimes the, the, the battle for, for finding a place to turn has gotten harder because we're more isolated than ever. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we, we've got so many uh, you know, acquaintances in our life. We've got people who are on our Facebook or Instagram. We've got all these followers, but we don't have any friends. Like friends who you can take your burdens to. 
Friends where you can say, this is what I'm struggling with and I just need somebody to hear me. I just need somebody to pray for me. I just need someone to sit with me, not to give me solutions, not to give me advice, but someone to just grieve with me, to weep with those who are weeping. How, how, do, you, how do you get that in our society? It's so difficult because we're so separated. And so in our society where, where it's even harder to have somewhere else to go, I would say we, we not only need to pursue that, but we need to even more pursue bringing our hurts to Jesus. Because we're not getting it somewhere else, most likely. We're not having someone else that we can share that burden with. We need to bring it to Jesus because as the Bible says in Proverbs, there is a friend who's closer than a brother. There is a Savior who, even if you don't have anybody in your life right now who can be in that role, He can be in that role. The hurting are at home with Jesus because Jesus is at home with the hurting. There's something about Jesus that draws us into him. There's something about Jesus that that we realize we are with someone who knows what it's like to hurt. We're with someone who knows what it's like to be tempted in every way. We We know that we're with someone who knows what it's like to lose a loved one and weep over it. We're with someone who knows what it's like to fight against evil and see the depths of our brokenness. We're with someone like Jesus who, as the Bible says, is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Acquainted with grief. I mean, what what hurts do you need to bring to Jesus that you've been holding back? Maybe you brought them to someone else and it didn't go that that well. Or maybe you're you're still struggling to find out, what what do I do with this? What I feel and what I'm suffering and what I'm I'm struggling with. What do I do with this? Jesus is saying, "You, you can bring them to me. Don't let anything be your barrier. I mean, you might have to push through a crowd. You you might have to climb up on a roof. You might have to dig through the roof. But bring it to Jesus. Bring it to him. I'm going to take my hurts to him so he can comfort me, so he can hear me, so he can understand me. I'm going to cast my cares upon him because he cares. Because I'm at home with him. And what happens when the hurting come to Jesus? Let's look next at the healing. Look at verse 5. It goes on to say, and when Jesus saw their faith, I love this, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, this is a somewhat surprising statement, if you think about it. I mean, these, these folks are bringing their friend to Jesus because they're hurting and, and Jesus is someone full of compassion and, and they're looking for healing. And Jesus surprises everyone when he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, we got to be careful here to not make the same theological mistake that the people in Jesus's time were making at that, uh, in their culture. Because in their culture, the Bible doesn't say this, but they had kind of developed this idea that if you were suffering or you were disabled, that was a sign of some sin in your life. It might be the sin of yourself or it might be the sin of your parents, but somewhere along the way, you can trace that back to someone is guilty of something. In fact, Jesus' disciples later in the Gospel of John, they would come to Jesus and there's a man born blind that they come across and, and they ask Jesus, Was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents? 
And do you know Jesus' answer? Neither. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're, you're thinking about this in the wrong categories. Suffering is not you've sinned or someone else's sinned, and therefore it's, it's some kind of equation, some, some kind of mathematical problem you can figure out. Suffering is this mystery of God's glory and his goodness being worked out in our life. And so Jesus is not, he's not saying to the man that your sins are what's caused this. Neither is Jesus saying, I'm dismissing your suffering. Jesus isn't saying, uh, you know, you, you've shown up for this, but that's really not your issue. Uh, you've got a bigger problem, so let's talk about your bigger problem. He's not dismissing his pain, his, his, his difficulty. He, he's not doing that at all. Jesus never does that. Never in the Gospels do you see Jesus doing that. So what is he doing? Here's what he's doing. He's giving this man more than he asked for. See, what they did was they came to Jesus looking for their physical hurts to be healed. And Jesus says, by saying your sins are forgiven, he's saying, I want to give you more than you are asking. I'm going to get to your healing. We're going to get to that in the story. But before we get to that, I want you to know that I see you as more than just your problems. I see you as more than than just whatever is going on in your life and in your circumstances. I, I really want to heal the whole person. I want to heal both your body and your soul. That you as a person, you you matter to me in the wholeness of who you are. And so what happens is God's healing is deeper than our hurting. Deeper than our hurting. In 1505, over 500 years ago, Michelangelo, the famous artist, he was asked by the Pope at the time, Pope Julius II, to design and and kind of architect his tomb for when he died. You know, the Pope, he he wanted his tomb to to look magnificent. And so he he finds one of the greatest living artists, Michelangelo. He can can design it for me. And Michelangelo takes this opportunity as the opportunity of a lifetime to design this for him. And so he immediately starts uh, going around Italy looking for the perfect pieces of marble. Because Michelangelo's, Michelangelo's view was basically the, the art was, was living in the marble. My job as the artist is to kind of release the art from the marble. That was his view. And so he wanted to find the perfect piece of marble for this project. And so as he's traveling around, he finds a few and he begins the project. And just a year into the project, the Pope changes his mind and says, stop that for now. I want you to work on finishing the Sistine Chapel, which many of you have probably seen pictures of that. And so he finishes that work and then he has another project for him and then another project for him. And then eventually all these projects that are distracting him, uh, the Pope dies and the, the tomb was never finished. And so... What happens is uh, he had 16 planned statues for the tomb, and there were only four that were begun, and they remain in kind of these various stages of completion. Michelangelo called them the captives because they were meant to be people, uh, these statues of of people, and and all you can see is certain body parts kind of coming to to life. You see one that has a head kind of starting to show, and then just a leg on another one, and then a torso on another one. And he was saying that that it's it's as if the, the, the art that was in it was longing to come out. 
that my job is to try to set it free and I couldn't quite set it free and make it whole. One author that I was reading as he was talking about this said this. He looked at the figures and he said, when I looked at those partial figures, they stirred up in me a deep longing to be completed. An ache to be set free from that which distorts and disguises, imprisons and inhibits my humanity, my wholeness. But as with those statutes, I cannot liberate myself. For that, I need the hand of another person. You hear that? What he's saying is is there's this ache deep within all of us to be whole. to, To be made whole in both our body and our soul. To be set free from the sin that's distorting our lives, that's distorting our minds and our feelings and our thoughts, our emotions, our desires. The sin that keeps us in captivity. There's a desire to be whole. And we all, if we're honest, we know that that desire to be whole goes beyond the surface level. It goes beyond the circumstances that are keeping you up at night. It goes beyond the anxieties and the fears that are keeping you down. It goes beyond the struggles in your marriage or with your kids or at your job. Whatever it is, those things are important. But we know, if we're honest, that the ache to be whole goes deeper into our relationship with God. It goes to the depths of who we are before God. I mean, it's one thing to bring your your cares of this world to God, but it's another thing to bring yourself to God and say, God, I want you for you. To hear your heavenly father say over you, we are in right relationship. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. To hear your father say that over to you and to know that even if my body in this season, in this this life that I'm living, or, or my circumstances are not what I hope they are, I know my God cares for the wholeness of who I am. I'm forgiven. See, here's the problem. We can't make ourselves whole. We can't make ourselves whole. I mean, most of us have tried. We're probably still trying on a daily basis. We try to make ourselves whole through acquiring things or, or pursuing power and position at our job or, or hoping that we can meet some kind of need that we're hoping will, will fulfill a pleasure that we long for. Whatever it is, we're, as the Bible says, we're seeking these idols. Our, our lives are, are factories for idols to worship, hoping those idols will fulfill us and then they don't because every idol lies to us. It never fulfills The only one who can is Jesus. The only one who has the ability, but not just the ability, the authority to heal us wholly is Jesus. How do we know that? Jesus tells us in this text, and this is where we'll look at next and we'll close. The hope. Look at the hope here. Look at verse 6. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, here's the thing. In one sense, these folks are right. I mean, it's it's true what they're saying. It's a true statement. No one can forgive sins ultimately but God alone. It's him and him alone who has the authority to do it. I mean, imagine for a moment if somebody sins against you and then another friend comes up to you the next day and says, oh, I forgive them. 
You'd be like, well, that's great that you forgive them. I haven't forgiven them yet. Right? When someone sins against another person, the only person who rightfully can forgive is the one who's been sinned against. The offended person has to be the forgiver. And so they're saying if God is the one who we offend when we sin, only God can forgive. And so Jesus, when he claims to forgive this man's sins, is claiming to be his God. And so the accusation of blasphemy is right unless it's true. Unless it's true. And Jesus responds in verse 9. Look at what he says. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus' question here, which is easier, has uh, puzzled people for centuries. Because it's a strange question that has really two answers. In one sense, it, it is easier for someone to say, my sin, or your sins are forgiven, because there's no way to actually prove physically that it happened or didn't happen. Right? Anyone can say that. They can walk up to you, pronounce forgiveness, but you can't prove it. But in another sense... It's harder because only God can actually do that. And so it's actually easier to heal somebody because anybody can be used by God to heal somebody, but only God can forgive. And so Jesus says this. He says, that you may know. Listen, this is all about authority. He's saying that you may know, have physical proof that I have the authority to do the greater work. I'm going to heal him. And so he looks over at the paralytic and he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. See, who Jesus is, his identity is what gives us hope. Who Jesus is in, in his divinity, in the fullness of, Godhead, of the Godhead that lives in Jesus, who he is is what gives us hope for our healing. In fact, this is the same accusation that appears later at the end of Mark. Jesus is on trial, and he, he's been arrested in the middle of the night, and, and his, his friend Judas comes and betrays him and brings these guards with him. And the guards uh, bind Jesus up and take him off to be tried in the middle of the night because it's all secretive and darkness, and they bring him to the, the high priest's house. And when they come to the high priest Caiaphas' house, all these people have gathered together, the, the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees, all these religious leaders, and they're going to put Jesus on trial in the middle of the night. And they start to hurl these accusations at Jesus. And one by one, these people are making accusations to a man who's done nothing but help and heal people. To a man who's done nothing but love and liberate people. They, they have no real accusations, but they start making up things. And here's what's strange. When Jesus is receiving all these accusations on trial, he doesn't give any defense. In fact, he's silent the entire time. And it gets to the point where the high priest is, is getting frustrated. And he says, have you no answer to make? And still Jesus remains silent. And then the high priest pushes him again. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? In other words, like, what, what are you doing? Who are you? There's that question again. And this time Jesus speaks. And he says, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am God. And when, when Caiaphas, the high priest, hears this, he tears his clothes and he starts to shout, blasphemy, blasphemy. Because Jesus claimed to be someone that no one thought could be there in their midst. See, blasphemy was the charge that got Jesus killed. Blasphemy was the charge that led Jesus to the cross. And like I said, what's interesting is Jesus, throughout the whole New Testament, there is no account of him giving a defense at his trial. Every time they're, they're giving him accusation after accusation, and Jesus never gives a defense. He's always silent. Why is that? Because Jesus was standing in our place on trial. Jesus came to be our substitute. And so every accusation against him, which wasn't true about him, was true about us. When they accuse him of blasphemy, it's us. It's, it's we who are the ones who blasphemed. It's we who are the ones who've rebelled against God. It's, it's we who are the ones who have, who have done wrong in his eyes and been disobedient against God and deserve his displeasure. And so Jesus is silent as our substitute because if we were to stand before God, we have no defense for our sin. But Jesus, as our substitute, absorbs all that accusation, all that guilt, all that shame. He takes it upon himself because he is the only one who is good enough and great enough to play that role, to conquer sin and death. See, who is this Jesus? That, that's the question we have to answer. If he's only a good person with good intentions, listen, if he's only a good person with good intentions, then he doesn't have the authority to do anything about our sin and death. But if he's only great, then he might have the authority to do something about it, but he doesn't care at all, and so he won't. Right? In one sense, he'll be just a comforting teddy bear. Or in another sense, he'll be a cold tyrant. But if he's both, if he's both infinitely good and infinitely great, then he's God. Because only God can make that kind of claim. No one else, right? It's blasphemy for anyone else to make that kind of claim unless it's true that there's a God who entered into our hurting world to bring the ultimate healing for all our sin and suffering. See, Jesus reveals that the way of healing, God's way of healing, is going to come through his own hurt. He wouldn't come down through a roof, right? He would come down from heaven to earth to save us. He would come pressing through whatever barrier that would, would come in front of him to make us whole because he could only make us whole if he was going to be torn apart on the cross. He would be judged so that we could be forgiven. He would be cursed so that we could be blessed. He would be broken so that we could be renewed. He would be cast out so that we could be brought in. He would be killed so that we could have life. Jesus, this, this is who he is. Who Jesus is, God for sinners, gives hope for our complete healing. For our complete healing. Because Jesus alone can make us whole. Jesus alone. Do you need his healing today? Do you need his healing as we close, I want to encourage you that his healing is always deeper than whatever the hurt is. 
What, what Jesus shows us in this story is that we come with, with whatever is on our hearts and Jesus goes deeper into our hearts. He goes deeper into our hearts to heal what, what we're not even aware of, what we're not even asking for. We, we come asking for one thing and Jesus says, I'll give you so much more than you could ask or imagine. I'll give you myself. I'll restore you fully because I want you to be with me. I want to bring you from the outside to the inside. But you need to put your trust in me. Jesus, seeing their faith, heals him. Body and soul. Will you trust him? Will you bring your hurts to him today? Let's go to him today, today together. Lord Jesus, we bring our whole hearts to you. Some of us have been trying to press through for a while. Some of us have been standing afraid on the outside, not sure if you would receive us, not sure if, if the hurt that we're feeling and the, the suffering and the pain and the sin that we're walking through is something that you can actually do or, or something that you actually care about. So God, we, by faith, we come. We bring them to you today. We ask that you would do what only you can do, what you have the power and authority to do to heal us and, and to change us and to forgive us and to bring us in. God, we pray you would do above and beyond anything we could ask or imagine because that's who you are. You're a healing God who deserves all praise. And may we walk away from bringing our hurts to you and say, we've never seen anyone like this because there is no one like you. You are the one true savior. You are the one who loves our soul, the one who loves the whole of who we are enough to give your life. And so we pray you would Receive us today, all of our hurts, all of our pains, all of our sin, and heal us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.